Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm talking to Eric again, or this is part two of the chat with Eric regarding hard gainers. And in this part, we particularly talk about the non-responders to weight training and maybe some things and strategies you can do if you do find that you don't respond as well as the average. And I think there are some practical take-homes in here that can be very, very valuable, not to just trainees, but also coaches of trainees, because you might find you have individuals who just don't seem to be responding. And maybe there's some suggestions within this podcast that you can use to help them get better results. And as always, guys, if you do enjoy these, we really appreciate it. If you like, if you're over on YouTube, subscribe, of course. If you're over on Spotify, for example, please leave us a nice review. Maybe five stars would be very, very welcome. But without further ado, let's get into the chat. Reliable predictors of of weight change success that are independent of some of those bigger picture psychological and behavioral elements. Yeah. No, I think... That makes complete sense. And in my experience of uh, clients who have lost like large amounts of body weight, they have been able to maintain it, but they have to try a little bit harder than the person that hasn't had to have lost that much. And they're probably someone who is more that spendthrift versus yeah. someone else who's a bit more thrifty. Um, uh, sorry, they are the more thrifty versus the right. person that's more spendthrift. So that makes uh, complete sense there. And then, mm-hmm. okay, so we have covered that really nicely to talk about hard gainers again, because I know yeah. this is what was meant to be the topic, um, but that was really interesting. So thank you. In terms, and I know actually I would almost classify, I think probably everyone lies on slightly a spectrum. And I think I'm on the spectrum of being more hard gainer where if you were to ask me, Eric, kind of what's your expenditure, what's your body weight? Uh, if I calculate what I expect you to have to eat to gain weight, it would be much less than what I am having to eat. And when people look at me and I'm like, man, my appetite is this person who you're like, you have that skeptical eyebrow. You're like, man, how can your appetite be bad? Like you, you're still really lean and like you're fine. And I find myself, I hit these walls of appetite where quite literally I'll look at a meal and I'll be like, I feel physically sick. Like it's yeah. a weird, really strange response. Actually, if someone, if I hadn't experienced it myself, I would think it's kind of a load of rubbish i'd be like how can just like thinking about eating a meal make you sick and like feeling sick and then i would have like a stress response to having like my breakfast in the morning so i was like man if i don't eat a good amount of food now i'm not going to be able to hit my calories by the end of the day i hit this kind of wall at some point with my appetite which i don't think a lot in my experience a lot of my clients are quite happy to keep going we're like right we need to rein in body fat just from like a competitive or aesthetic kind of goal that we're trying to achieve Um, but when you are thinking about strategies that people can, in terms of these hard gainers can use to kind of help themselves in these sort of scenarios, if we're talking about that kind of not the non-responder necessarily with the training, but more so the appetite and kind of the neat regulation, what are some of the things that you look at? Yeah. So what I do, uh, like I said, uh, we have to lean a lot on the weight loss literature to make inferences about weight gain, um, because there's just not a lot of intentional weight gain interventions that you see outside of like recovery from anorexia nervosa, which is a a very unique special case. But there's a a great deal of literature about how people can influence hunger and satiety responses, influence uh, reward responses when they're losing weight. And what we can do is essentially lean on the inverse of that and, and say, okay, well, if, you know, these things are good for promoting weight loss passively, by interacting with these various control systems, if we invert those, that's probably our best set of strategies for moving in the other direction and trying to work through high satiety, low hunger, low reward, and try to kind of 
get us into this kind of uh, intentional weight gain phase. So a few things that come to mind, uh, you know, there, there have been studies indicating that uh, the types of foods we select can be really impactful, right? So for example, uh, there was a study by Kevin Hall's research group where they looked at uh, processed foods and they found that, you know what, even after trying to control for a whole bunch of factors, people do kind of seem to overeat processed foods a little bit more uh, than 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 unprocessed or lower processed foods. Uh, so when you look into processing, there's a few things that go into that, probably texture and mouthfeel, um, just a, a more pleasant eating experience. But um, when, when we look at food texture, uh, people have looked at that uh, independently. And there was actually a recent study that looked at uh, not just the degree of processing, but also just whether or not a food was hard or soft, because, you know, those two things can be kind of related, but they're certainly not synonymous, right? You can have a processed food with a hard texture, and you can have an unprocessed, relatively unprocessed food with a soft texture. So what they're looking at is the convergence of those factors. And they found that if you make a food highly processed and soft, that does tend to promote greater intakes. And, and again, it comes down to a couple of things, mouthfeel, uh, just the pleasantness of eating something that isn't super hard and crunchy and things like that. And then also the fact that you can eat those things more quickly. And so, uh, you know, there are two things that go into eating speed that, that relate to satiety. First of all, there's a theory that the more you have to chew something, so like a hard, relatively unprocessed meal, the more you have to chew it, uh, it slows your rate of eating such that satiety signals have a, a greater opportunity to kick in before you've reached a really high level of caloric intake. You know, there, there is a set, a, a particular amount of time required for those signals to be generated and perceived in, in the necessary brain centers. So one element of slow eating is just that give those satiety signals time to kick in. The other thing relates to more memory and cognition. And, and so there's an interesting theory that when you're consuming something slowly, and let's say, for example, it has a hard texture, relatively unprocessed, you're chewing on it more, uh, you are interacting with the flavors and the aromas of that food for a greater period of time per calorie ingested. And uh, this ties into the concept of distracted eating. We, we, we see that people tend to eat more when they're distracted. People have wondered perhaps eating it, uh, you know, more slowly in an undistracted state actually has an influence on our memory and cognition. We're saying, wow, every mouthful of food, I'm really savoring the flavor, the aroma, I feel more satisfied with a lower number of calories. So you can make a very strong argument that someone who's trying to bulk and, and is really struggling and, and might see themselves as a hard gainer, you might start to strategically look at your food selection and say, let's go for things that are softer. Let's go for things that are potentially a little bit more highly processed. And maybe it's not a bad idea to kind of speed up your rate of eating and even just kind of eat in a, in a distracted state. And that sounds kind of dumb. Say, well, okay, so what are you going to like fabricate a, a distraction intervention when you're eating? But it's actually quite simple. That could be something as easy as, hey, when you're, you know, kind of scrolling through social media, when you're watching television, watching a movie, 
maybe snack on something and maybe, you know, instead of popcorn, which has low energy density and is, you know, kind of crunchy and stuff, maybe you go for, for something that's a little bit softer, higher energy density. Uh, and of course that that's the, the obvious thing, um, when it comes to food selection, aside from, I started with the complex stuff first with processing and texture, but a very easy thing is energy density. You know, if you can get in, uh, you know, 800 calories from a tiny meal instead of 800 calories from an enormous meal that has a ton of water content and fiber and just physically fills up your gut. Uh, you know, focusing on higher energy density can be a, a pretty helpful thing. Uh, there's probably a saturation point at which point uh, your energy density is just kind of high enough to get the job done. Uh, and the important thing is that energy density seems to be uh, more of a whole meal thing than a food by food thing. So like sometimes people, um, there, there was a recent paper um, that, that put forward a model where they said when the whole meal energy density is below a certain value, it seems to be the volume of food consumed or the mass of food consumed that basically determines when a meal is terminated. But if you are beyond that level and you have a really high energy density, Regardless of the mass of food consumed, it looks like the total number of calories is what really dictates the cessation of the meal. So what you're trying to do is basically just get over the hump and get into a meal where the overall meal energy density is is basically high enough, right? And and so I think the number they used looking at kilocalories per gram as the metric for energy density. I think they were saying that pretty much once you start getting above like 1.75 or two, um, and you you could go through the trouble of trying to calculate it per meal if you want, um, kind of a lot of a lot of hassle there. But basically, once you get beyond this threshold for the meal, you're into that space where food volume and food mass is no longer your limiting factor, and and it's just going to be straight up calorie intake. So so generally speaking, you're a hard gainer, you're trying to push through that. You want to gravitate toward meals that are uh, you know, high energy density, so a lot of calories per, you know, volume or mass of food, uh things that are soft, processed. And the 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 additional factor that I think is really important, I touched on this earlier, uh, we all respond differently to a hyperpalatable meal in terms of the relative reward response that we experience. But but it definitely looks like um, while we have these hunger and satiety systems interacting, we can often override those systems if we can introduce a meal that is hyperpalatable enough. Um, and usually that's framed as a bad thing, right? Because it's all, it's usually talking about weight loss and people are saying, well, you're dysregulating your hunger and satiety cues by introducing this hedonic reward response. Uh, but we can actually leverage that in the hard gainer scenario and say, yeah, you know, your hunger and satiety cues are keeping you or nudging you toward a lower body weight. We can actually probably override that with some degree of success if we find meals that are hyper palatable enough to elicit that reward response to overpower uh, the satiety and hunger regulation. So um, I think that's kind of the most concise playbook is <laughs> things that taste phenomenal, things that go down easy, things that you can eat uh, quickly. And if you can throw in a little bit of distraction, uh, it probably goes a long way because Steve, I know you've been there. I'm certain of it. 
when you're just staring at the plate and you're saying, oh my God, how am I going to actually finish this? It's a little bit easier when you're, you know, watching TV and, and laughing along with a nice show and, oh, hey, what do you know? My plate's empty. Uh, no, absolutely. I, I started, literally started my mini cut. Uh, I'm not doing it now. I finished it a while ago, but I started it because I had my massing breakfast in front of me, my bowl here where, where I am right now. And I was just, I had a couple of, I had like a mouthful, which I had to build myself up to. And I was like, I can't do it. I, I can't yeah. do it at all. Uh, I was just thinking in my head, you could probably work out if someone is like a more of a hard gainer versus someone who struggles a bit more of dieting. If you just ask them like, which do you generally prefer? Like, do you prefer cutting or do you prefer kind of gaining? And my preference, like I always feel better generally cutting. And I always say there's a honeymoon phase where after the cut, I feel good for like a little bit. And then I'm like in that zone of like, damn. And I have to start throwing these strategies that you mentioned versus someone else who like in their gaining phase, they have to be careful with these palatable foods because they are maybe that more thrifty phenotype and their appetite is just it's like they find I, I me and Pascal are like opposite ends of the spectrum. So Pascal will be like, I don't know, potatoes and ketchup and like some chicken. And he's like, yeah, that's a tasty meal. And I'm like, that sounds like I'm cutting hard. <laughs> like, I'm, like I can't do yeah. it with this. And obviously I get to these points where like extreme when I'm taking it to stage, like I'm hungry as everyone else. But uh, I hit the upper intervention point much sooner than him. But again, he's a good example through his habits and behaviors. He's talked about it a lot. He's managed to maintain a leaner physique. And it's actually really impressive what he's been able to do there. But basically your message was almost think of your diet hacks and kind of flip those on their face. Yeah. And everything you think is wrong to do, you almost have to unlearn and tr if you're a hard gainer and transition into kind of learning that i don't know that milkshake that you'd never have during a cut you're like actually that's exactly what i need right now that orange juice is exactly what i need right now whatever it might be yeah and, and there, there's two other things to mention here one thing is that i i think until you've been a hard gainer bulking you may not realize how much the fitness industry has turned you a little bit orthorexic um you know because like you, you'll run into the situation where someone will be like, well, I want to bulk, but I couldn't possibly have that milkshake because like I'm a fitness person. It's like, yeah. well, dude, you, all you're trying, like you have your fiber needs met, your protein, your micronutrients. You're literally just trying to supplement calories right now. And it's like, yeah, but that's a bad food. I'm like, well, people call it a bad food because they think it might predispose you to overeating. You are trying to overeat. <laughs> yeah. Like like th this isn't uh, as complicated as you're making it out to be. But But yeah, sometimes you kind of, you have to interact with these biases that have been planted in your head where you're like, I mean, I, I used to have kids that would be in my weight training class and they're like, oh, I, I just couldn't possibly eat more. I'm never going to be as big as I want. And I'm like, well, what do you eat? And they're like, well, I'm eating clean, like a bunch of chicken and broccoli and like sometimes some some sweet potatoes. And I'm like, oh, really? And you, it, you're hard, it's hard to eat 5,000 calories a day of chicken <laughs> and broccoli? Man, that's crazy. I, I would never have thought that. But I mean, obviously I wasn't a smart ass to their face, yeah. but I'm like, dude, just like have a Snickers bar. And they're like, I can't, I'm a fitness person. It's like, yeah, you, you have to unravel some of that bias and recognize like, well, the things that we've been told are like bad foods. It, that's what we're trying to get out of them when we're bulking, you know, it's yeah. easy access to calories that go down smooth and won't make us not want to eat for the next six hours. Uh, the other thing you mentioned earlier, was just, I forget exactly when you mentioned it, but you had talked about when bulking and kind of fighting through a meal and basically saying, well, if I don't get this down now, there's no way I'm going to hit my calories for the day because yeah. you you kind of dig yourself into a hole and it gets harder and harder. Another thing that we can leverage that I forgot to mention is meal frequency. 
right? Meal slash snacking frequency. Uh, so sometimes when people are dieting, it can be helpful psychologically and in some cases physiologically to opt for a lower meal frequency. And you can say, oh, well, instead of having six tiny meals that are just totally depressing to look at, if I get down to like two or three, but they're all substantial. And when I'm done eating, I can just forget about food for six hours for weight loss purposes, lower meal frequency can often be a really helpful thing. Uh, I often find the inverse is true for bulking, which is not that there's some physiological, you know, and maybe you could argue, you could try to kind of work your way backwards from the conclusion and find the evidence to support it. But I, I think if nothing else, behaviorally, it, it really helps people to look down at a meal that's only a seventh of their, their intake for the day and say, yes, I, I can eat this right now. Versus if you try to consolidate you know, they're 4,300 calories for the day into three meals, they would look down at that plate with, you know, well over a thousand calories and say, no way, I just can't, you know, so I, I think that meal frequency and just frequent mindless snacking can go a really long way as well. Yeah, that's uh, something I regularly come into <clears throat> with clients. And it was something I struggled with as well, was they'd have these, their, all their high habits from dieting, they transition them into massing and they'd get to the end of the day and be like, Steve, I'm stuffed by the end of the day. Like I have this huge meal, I can't get it down. And I'm like, why are you saving a thousand calories plus for like two hours before bed? How about you have a bigger breakfast? They're like, do you have a good appetite in the morning? Yeah, it's like they have their same kind of cutting breakfast in the morning. So it's like you have to transition out of these almost now bad habits, but were once good habits. Yeah, and even just silly stuff. Like it's like, yeah, you, you, you're looking at that last meal of the day and it's 1100 calories and they're like, oh, I can't. It's like, how much grape juice could we sip on during your workout, right? Like we, we don't have to get some like super expensive, fancy intra workout drink, but like, can you drink a sports drink or a fruit juice or even a diluted fruit juice? If a regular fruit juice is just too much for you during a workout, like you can start to reallocate these things in some really easy ways and be like, Hey, remember when before fitness, you used, used to have cream and sugar in your coffee and then everyone told you you're not allowed to anymore? What if you did again? You know, what what would happen then? And so, yeah, you can find these ways to get these calories back in and be like, yeah, that's, this isn't necessarily so bad, but it is necessarily bad when you restrict yeah. yourself to low calorie options the entire day. And then you look down at your plate and you have... 3000 calories worth of sweet potato at, at 10 PM at night. Like, yeah, that, that is tough, but we can, we can try to offset that in many different ways. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. 
Eric, I want to be respectful of your time. We've already gone over an hour. Are you still okay to chat? Because I have more questions. I'm completely fine. And it, it's my fault. I, oh, that's not yeah, your fault at all. I, I took I us down tangents. the dual intervention model big time because I was super yeah. interested in that. I think it's very interesting. No, I, I uh, have no time constraints. Great. So yeah, the my next question was something I've been theorizing and thinking about. So at this point, I'm almost auto-regulating for someone like me who isn't on that more hard gainer spectrum where I take my mini cuts in terms of I don't use it as like a body fat regulator because I'm never at risk of really being at a body fat that's too far away from like a stage or that I'm comfortable with or maybe is not uh, kind of good for my health and well-being. I'm just never really likely to get there. But I've been, when I got to this point with my breakfast, I described and I tried kind of doing all these things we've just described i was like right i'm mini cutting and then after about i think it was i ran it for three weeks and i dropped maybe 10 pounds and my appetite is i mean it's been great it's slowing a little bit now i'm getting closer to what that height of body weight i got to previously but um i've been theorizing whether for those people who are trying to get past this point gain more muscle and they want to put on that size someone like myself more frequent but shorter mini cutting or aggressive dieting could be a tool that they can use i don't know if that's something you have any thoughts around here it's never i, I can't imagine we have any literature on it apart from maybe you can look into some of the diet stuff with like rebounds because yeah. it's almost trying to rebound things in your favor because that's something again when you think about dieting you don't really want to do these really aggressive kind of yo-yo diets but when you're trying to get past this point as a hard gainer maybe it could have the effect you're looking for yeah you know i could see it going two different ways that are completely opposite um <laughs> You know, because if someone tells me, well, you know, what I do is I get to the point where my appetite is just totally shut down. And let's say that's at a weight of 190. And then I do a mini cut and I get down to 180. And then I say, great, my appetite's back. And then I bulk back up. But then eventually I reach a point again where I'm just, I need a mini cut because my appetite's taking over. If that happens to keep occurring at 190 and we're just going to 190 and then going back to 180 and that 190, 180 and body composition isn't really changing all that much with each repeating cycle, I would say this probably, um, you know, this might not be the best option because there's a maybe a little bit of wheel spinning going on there. And, and so what I would say is for some people that might work. You know, for some people, they might be able to do it, the, the type of thing where they get up to 170, appetites totally shot, cut down to 160, bulk up to 174, down to 164, 178, 168. If that's the way the trajectory is going, I'd say, okay, that's that's fine. You know, there are many ways to do it, and that would be one viable way because the, the proof is there. We, we are making this significant progress over time. For other people, I might even recommend a completely opposite strategy, which is, you know, a lot of times we're saying, well, I need, you know, I'm just completely stuffed at the end of this bulk. And that's why I need to do a mini cut. One thing that would be worth considering is not for everyone, but in some cases, there might be a scenario where someone says, oh, man, I'm just I'm so stuffed right now. I have to end this bulk. There might be some people who get there because they are simply trying to bulk too quickly. And, and so their idea is for me to have a successful bulk, I need to be eating, you know, 4,300 calories and being in this huge surplus. And part of me wonders, would your bulk be more tolerable in the short term and more successful in the long term if instead of trying to have, you know, this enormous caloric surplus, if you maybe cut it in half? 
and and did a bulk that lasted twice as long, maybe, you know, so part of it is going to be related to reaching a, a, a weight or a body fat level where some of those signals start to kick in and you say, okay, I, my appetite's shot. Uh, but, but in some cases, part of it could be just simply the urgency of bulking and, and the, the rate of weight gain that someone is trying to achieve. And it, it could very well be in some scenarios that an individual is running into appetite issues because they are simply trying to achieve a surplus that is just too large for them to to, to manage at that point in time. So, so yeah, I, I could see in some situations a scenario where it makes sense to do these aggressive bulks and then mini cuts because it's just like for me personally, I just want to pull off the Band-Aid, do it hard for a short period of time and then switch. Um, I think for a lot of people that can work, the biggest thing you want to monitor is be objective. Is this working? Because if it's just constantly going back from A to B to A to B to A to B, then it's not working uh, in practice. Uh, in other scenarios, you might have someone who uh, would would be much better off with just saying, you know what, instead of trying to do a 12-week sprint for bulking, which will necessarily require a bigger daily surplus, what if instead of doing this for 12 weeks, I do it for 36 and I say, I'm going to go for a deficit that's about a third the size of what I'm used to. Maybe my appetite can tolerate that more effectively. And, you know, maybe rather than doing sprint forward, sprint backward, I just do a nice slow and steady increase over 36 weeks. Uh, I, I think ultimately both are viable ways to do it. My general preference personally is to go a little bit slower and have fewer transition phases um, but ultimately, you know, there's no right or wrong there. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And my main interest as a, a content creator and fitness professional is making sure people just know that both items are on the menu and you can choose your preference, um, which, yeah. which is, which is a powerful thing. It's nice to know that you're not stuck with one way or the other. Yeah. I think that's well stated. And I think, uh, the way you suggested it in terms of the um, overall longer term trajectory is going up is the kind of thought process I had with that person. Because like you said, if they're just spit they're aggressively going one direction, that is just yo-yo, kind of completely yo-yo. Uh, and that's yeah. not what you want um, at all. So that will just, and in my experience as well, when I have seen people go through that, or if I have done that in the past i don't think i've particularly done that but that has just led to kind of wheel spinning so then yeah. yeah it makes sense that if people are trying to go that aggressively and they're hitting walls very soon slowing things down and just doing a bit so on average maybe they both look the same in the bigger picture but um one approach might just suit someone just that even just down to preference is better yeah and, and i think one question to kind of boil all that down really concisely to ask yourself is you're at your, you know, bulking and your intake has just become untenable, right? Your, your appetite is just shot and you're like, I can't, I can't keep up this high intake. I think the question to ask yourself is the fact that your intake has become totally unsustainable and you're like, I can't keep this up. Uh, you know, is that because you're trying to go too quickly or is it because you re you have reached a body weight where it, you you must go that high to try to push through it. You know, is is your high calorie target the cause or the consequence of the friction that you're experiencing? So if you're someone who you'd say, you know what, I bet I could continue gaining weight on a smaller deficit and I wouldn't feel sick every meal, then that's probably a good way to go. But if you're someone who your calorie intake necessarily is that high because you've been pushing through so much physiological friction and struggling so much to gain any weight at all, 
then in that case, I think the more frequent mini cut situation makes more sense. But yeah, I, I do think that there are some people who assume they need to eat way more than they do in order to keep the keep the number going up over time. And in some cases, they might be causing some of that misery by overshooting or overestimating the actual surplus that they need. So I think asking yourself that question, you know, am I actually making this harder by going higher or am I going higher with my calories out of necessity? I think that's a really telling thing. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I, uh, for me personally, I get to this point where, because I've even tried um, just going to maintenance maybe for a period of time. I'm just like, I'll just go at maintenance. Just do a period of maintenance because I don't need to cut body fat. And then I'm just like, man, I'm even struggling to eat maintenance calories. <laughs> I'm just like, I yeah. need to, this isn't, isn't going to yeah. uh, do it for me. So I think uh, if I'm thinking about this person, if they're even struggling to eat at their maintenance, then clearly it's a body weight type of issue yeah. versus absolutely um, the surplus there. But something I did want to touch on, because I think people will be really interested in this side too, is that other side of hard gainer where it's not necessarily talking about kind of struggling to gain weight. They might be able to gain the weight, but they might think they're a hard gainer due to not responding as fast as other individuals. So I'd love to talk about kind of the reality. Is there people who just do not respond to weight training? And uh, what does that pitch kind of look like for that hard gainer? Yeah, well, I, I don't want to plug my own stuff here unnecessarily, but um, uh, Greg uh, is a guest sometimes on the Stronger by Science podcast. And he just did a whole like two hour segment on this topic. So I, oh, I, I wanted to make sure that I at least alluded to that because <laughs> he he knows this topic inside and out. Basically, everything I know about it, I've gotten from him and from just reviewing papers in mass um, as part of our internal peer review process. Um, but but yeah, Greg recently on our podcast, I don't know if it's been published yet. If not, it'll go up. Uh, I think on it Monday. might have just gone up like maybe even today, I think, cause I was doing yeah. a little bit of short-term research and I was like, oh, they just, yeah, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> so we, we broke it into two segments, two very short hour long segments. Uh, so the second one went up today, the full episode, I think goes up on Monday, the 10th of October, if that's a Monday, but anyway, it, it's there if you want to really dive into this and look at individual studies. But the, the general premise is that when it comes to hypertrophy responses to resistance training. And I'll admit, I'm, I'm, I don't know what the going definition of hard gainer is these days. I mean, it's kind of a made up term anyway. So some yeah. people might say, we have now transitioned from the hard gainer talk, which is weight gain into the non responder or low yeah. responder talk, which I guess some people will want to separate that out because some people can gain weight very efficiently but notice that, hey, none of this seems to be muscle, right? But I, I do think it makes sense to discuss them together. Uh, but yeah, so one of the things that Greg points out is looking at the literature. So not just anecdotes and crap like that, but looking at, I, I shouldn't say crap, anecdotes <laughs> are valuable, but you know sometimes anecdotes give you some unreliable indicators of what's really going on. But looking at really large studies, looking at, at, at individual responses, it's very clear that there are substantial differences in how people respond to hypertrophy focused resistance training. So there was this one study where they kind of broke people up into these kind of like the lowest quartile and the middle 50% and the third quartile. And basically what they found is like the lowest quartile, you know, 25th percentile and below in response to this hypertrophy focused training, they gained like literally no muscle. Uh, and these were untrained people. So normally we think you're untrained, you respond to anything and everything. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. Like there are people who 
even though they're untrained, have these extremely disappointing responses to resistance training. Now, the the middle 50%, uh, you know, they, they had a, a pretty good response. The upper quartile had a response that was on average double the magnitude of the average group, right? So some people had no gains at all. Other people got what you would consider typical gains. This upper quartile got double that. And then the one individual in the study who was like the best responder of all got triple the results of the kind of normal responder group. Uh, and now that was kind of a smaller study. I think there were less than 100 people, um, which is a big study for for our field. But if you're looking at the the totality of human responses, obviously 100 people is not going to tell you about all the variation out there in the world. Um, but but that has that general finding has been mostly supported by even bigger studies with several hundred people where they will still find people who have literally no gains, uh, even over relatively longer, long-ish timescales with resistance training. Uh, and then, you know, you'll have your average response. And then some of your better responders will be about double the average response. And then some of your outlier folks were talking about triple, quadruple the normal response. And I mean, even just if you just vaguely follow something like powerlifting or bodybuilding, you'll see these people who just pop onto the scene and you're like, well, holy shit, since when do they squat 600? And it's like, yeah, well, two years ago, they squatted 350, but shit happens. And all of a sudden there, it's like, that's not a normal response, right? To just like get into lifting and two years later, you're squatting 600, but it happens sometimes. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's important to recognize the amount of variability is immense, but I think one of the most important things that uh, that that Greg looked into in his segment was the fact that there are some things we can do if we happen to notice that we're on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of responses to resistance training, specifically when it comes to hypertrophy. And some of these, I even like joked with him during the segment. I was like, oh, that's really insightful because they're, they're extremely obvious, but there is empirical data to support them. So like one of Greg's uh, gems of wisdom was like train longer. <laughs> but like it, what, what's really interesting is that there are studies where they look very short term and they say, okay, these people are non-responders to resistance training. But if you check in a few months later, they become responders. Now, it doesn't mean that they totally catch up with everyone else, but but there is some element where in some studies you might look at and say, oh my God, I didn't know this many people have no response to training. It's usually that we're just looking at it over too short of a timescale. And if, if they stuck with it, they would become somewhat underwhelming responders, but responders nonetheless. Uh, there's other research indicating that uh, again, this is another gem of wisdom. Have you tried doing more and doing it harder, right? Like very obvious, but there are studies where they've looked at the non-responders within a, a study and said, okay, what if we just triple your workload? Like, what if we just train more and harder and they do it? And all of a sudden they go from being non-responders to still underwhelming responders, but responders nonetheless. Um, I think one of the more insightful um, and uh, kind of novel findings that Greg looked at, um, something that's a little bit more actionable than just like do it longer and do it more. There is a study looking at, I believe, kind of like high load versus low load resistance training. And it was a crossover trial, which was cool because they could see how people responded to one and the other within the same person rather than just looking at two totally different groups and saying which one's better. Now, on average, just purely looking at averages, 
the the average response to low load training was very similar to the average response to high load training within the conditions of the study, which pretty much matches up with what we know. You know, you can achieve great hypertrophy with low load or high load training as long as you know you're you're kind of minding the details about total volume and frequency and things like that, right? Generally speaking, it all washes out if you equate the necessary variables. But what was interesting was the individual responses to different training programs was was quite different. And so you could look at it and say, on average, Steve, you enroll a new client tomorrow. On average, will they do better with low load or high load training based on the data? A random person that you know nothing about, probably both will be fine, right? But what this study showed was that within individual, there were, were considerable differences in responses such that some individuals did way better with low load training than high load training. And for others, the complete opposite was true. And we're not talking about little tiny differences that are just measurement error. Um, you know, of course, measurement error is always part of the of the consideration. Uh, statistical regression to the mean is always part of the consideration with this type of data. But the magnitude was large enough that you would look at it and say, this is a genuine difference in how this person responded to training. And so what that tells us is, if you're someone who thinks you're a non-responder or just a very poor responder to training, yes, sticking with it for longer will help. Yes, doing more of the same stuff will probably help. Uh, but more importantly, you should feel very comfortable about trying very different approaches to training and seeing if your response meaningfully differs. Now, this is where we run into an interesting situation where, Steve, you know, one of the worst things that you can be, according to the fitness world, is a program hopper. And I personally review every application that comes in for our one-on-one -on -one coaching services. And I see it many, many times where people will say, I know, I admit it, I'm sorry, I'm a program hopper, I need to hire a coach to make me stop doing this, you know? And, and so there's a fine line between being a program hopper and just being way too stubborn and hard-headed, right? Like, of yeah. course, it doesn't do you any good to switch up your to a totally different training style every three weeks and assume that nothing has ever worked for you. Because guess what? Not a lot of stuff happens over three weeks for a natural lifter, right? Like you have to give it a little more time to actually figure out how you're responding to a program. Um, but we should not suggest that it's virtuous to decide early in your career what the perfect training program is and then just stick with it no matter what forever. I think there is value in trying out a training style for, you know, two, three, four months. And if it's very underwhelming, trying something new and saying, oh, wow, uh, I thought I was a really poor responder to training, but I was a poor responder to that style of training. And, you know, we, we can look at different training styles um, that, that differ meaningfully in terms of proximity to failure, uh, total set volume, rep ranges, training frequency. I mean, the, the programs can take very, very different forms. Uh, and, and it's important to explore among those kind of key variables, what seems to be working for you. And I, I can tell you the biggest mistakes I've ever made as a coach are ignoring anecdotes that turned out to be highly valuable, right? So like sometimes you'll get someone in who says, hey, I do this kind of style of training where I, I just work up to a single top set and I take it to an RPE of like 31, <laughs> you know, like where people just go one set, 
all out past failure, you know, they're bench pressing and they get someone to just pry the bar off their chest when they're done and help them with like three forced reps. And you're like, dude, there's no way that you actually respond best to that. Cause like, you know, here's this meta analysis. Here's the other meta analysis. You get them into a more traditional training program with different frequency, more set volume, lower proximity to failure, but kind of distributed over more sets. And you say, because of science, this will work better. And then it just doesn't. Yeah. So, so sometimes, you know, you, you will get a client who, when you enroll them, they say, yeah, I, uh, um, I, I, I know what's supposed to work, but I've done this other stuff that's pretty unconventional and, you know, that stuff works better for me. And sometimes you can just kind of write that off as, you know, maybe their perception isn't necessarily totally reflective of reality. Maybe it's just kind of what they prefer to do or there's some kind of bias involved where the people that they really kind of look up to in training train that way. So they kind of assume it's best. Sometimes it's it's easy or even tempting to write off some of those anecdotes of relatively atypical responses that buck the norm based on what the meta analysis tells us is supposed to be the perfect approach to training. But uh, I, I think it can be very valuable to uh, to take those anecdotes seriously when, when working with people at the individual level. It, it's really important to recognize that, you know, what works best for most people on average in aggregate is not necessarily always the blueprint for getting one individual their best possible results. So when people come to you, um, you know, it, it's important to when you're enrolling a new client, for example, ask what what seems to have worked in the past what seems to have worked very poorly in the past and with your own training it, it's very important to be open especially early in your lifting career to experimenting with a few different training styles and truly coming into it with an open mind because uh you know we can it, it's great to have all the meta analyses in the world that tell us what is typically pretty good for most people um but but if if your goal is to get as big and strong as you possibly can, or to maximize your progress toward your fitness goals, uh, those papers can only serve as a rough guide a and individualized assessment trial and error is going to be an important part of the process. So um, yeah, so so for someone who expects that, you know, they feel like maybe their response isn't average, the first thing you want to do is actually look at the data and say, well, how unusual is it to to have you know only 30% of the average response and it turns out it's it's actually not that rare to have pretty underwhelming responses relative to to the average like that's kind of necessarily how averages work like most people are going to be considerably above or below the true average value uh, without getting into the range where you say wow this is anomalous, just totally atypical. So the first thing is you don't want to overestimate how far from the average you actually are and how atypical that is. Um, but then you want to consider some of those practical things, which is, you know, should I do the same thing for longer? Should I do the same thing harder and with more volume? Or should I even start to branch out and experiment with different types of programs that differ on the basis of frequency, set volume, proximity to failure, things of that nature. Rep range, that, that's a big one as well. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? 
It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the mini cut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The mini cut movement is open 24 seven. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together. I think that was really well uh, described there actually. And I think a key part of that is that expectations piece because especially in our day and age where I don't know your expectations are like you said the world like the, the best powerlifters the best bodybuilders because these are the people that show up on your instagram feed and they have the biggest followings because they are these outliers that are just interesting and kind of out there whereas your average individuals they can kind of get lost in in the weeds so you don't see that so your expectations could just be completely like biased by that quite easily i think oh for sure yeah and, and that's the biggest thing is like man there are a few things less productive than comparing yourself to people who are like fitness influencers, not because their experience is um, not fascinating and useful to learn from, but it's just not generalizable. Like the yeah. people who kind of in a saturated world of fitness where you have to, in many cases, have a really special physique to kind of rise to the top. Um yeah, it's the the idea that you would look at that and say, well, how come my gains aren't as fast as theirs? It's like, well, almost nobody's gains are as fast as theirs, you know, so it's, it's better to lean on the literature and say, well, okay, so let's assume that their response is about three times better than the average or three times faster than the average. So, so then where does that put me relative to the average, not the exception? Yeah. And then I, and then once you have that expectation working from that standpoint of, uh, have you been doing it long enough? I think it's great because again, like you said, program hopping isn't necessarily completely wrong. It's But if you're doing it too frequently, then it definitely can be. And then making sure that you've been doing it for long enough and then calibrating yourself in terms of, am I actually training hard enough? That's certainly uh, where I kind of start with clients is quite often they are trying new things too frequently. So you stop that, then you run a program for a period of time, then you make sure, right, we're doing it enough. Are you doing it hard enough and well enough the quality's there and then maybe you try quantity and then it's normally that solves it for most people i find kind of because most people are average that works so the average kind of scientific recommendations then slightly individualized tend to work really well for most people but like you said if that's now not working possibly it's trying something different and a question i had actually was i have heard it said and i think this comes from like the effective reps model that kind of it does like you might as well use lower reps in terms of for hypertrophy because you get to those effective reps sooner and that's the most important part so why do like uh, 10 extra reps if you don't need to to get to those effective reps but this study i was interested to know that there was kind of the high load and the low load were they going kind of up to quite high repetitions for the low load and do we have a th theory to why maybe people responded better to that you know um Ultimately, I think for a deep dive on like the the effective reps concept, uh, Greg did a great write up on our website about it. Um, ultimately, that is his domain, and I don't want to uh, muddy the waters by reinterpreting his his statements. Sure. Um, I, I think 
generally speaking, um, there is, I, I don't think the effective reps model is, you know, a perfect explanatory model for hypertrophy. Uh, I think there's a lot more that goes into it. I think we're kind of sorting out what we generally need, which is you need a decent amount of total volume, a decent amount of set volume, a what I would call a reasonable proximity to failure if you want to achieve hypertrophy. Um, but within that, you know, I, I think there's so much variability in terms of different ways to do it. And, and ultimately, I think that's kind of the key uh, takeaway from that study was that if you are doing uh, relatively sufficient set volume and getting reasonably close to, uh, you know, a low RIR or a high RPE level, um, you know, the, the rep ranges at which we can effectively maximize hypertrophy on average are, are quite broad. Um, and, and then just kind of figuring out where you fall on that ultimately is a, a process of individualization and kind of trial and error troubleshooting. So, yeah, I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of, you know, a unifying model to solve hypertrophy uh, based on training variables, because I'm not the person to do it. And I, I don't think any anyone quite is yet. But uh, but yeah, I mean, but it, it's certainly interesting to see that with 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 very different loading paradigms. Uh, with some of those key other variables of training relatively equated, we can find a situation where people generally on average have similar results, but individuals respond quite differently to one versus the other. So like you were saying, I think uh, most people are pretty average. Uh, and that's a fact based on how averages work. And, uh, you know, and so with that in mind, that averages are a great starting point, right? So so what that would tell you as a coach or as someone who's trying a new program is I will probably have a pretty average response and therefore higher load, lower load. As long as I'm minding, minding all the other details, probably not a huge deal. But like you said, when you start getting into that situation where you say, well, this stuff doesn't seem to be working the way I would expect on average. That's where you start to explore from there and say, well, maybe I need a kind of not average training approach to give me results because uh, it, it seems like I'm not not having the average re response to the average training program. And that's where, um, you know, some of that open-mindedness and not program hopping, but uh, program exploration can be a, a really helpful thing for your long-term development. Because, man, just there's nothing worse than trying a program that just doesn't work for two doesn't work for like two years. And then you try something new and say, oh, I lost two years where I could have been making these kinds of gains. Like you, you don't want to find yourself in that situation. So give it an honest effort, give it an honest, uh, open-minded attempt, but don't be afraid to move off of a program after 12 weeks. Cause, because otherwise you, you, you might just be delaying the time that it takes you to identify the thing that really works well for you. Yeah. I think this is, uh, I think you're the same as me, Eric, in terms of not taking uh, tools off the table so whether that be exercises off the table because there'd be i don't know people on social media nowadays they like to be that dichotomous and like these are the best exercises or this is the rep range you must use and it's like well we have quite a wide range of rep ranges we have a lot of different exercises and we're all a little bit different so if you have the people might think or see these constraints and then like you said there might be two years down the line because 
so-and-so said, nope, it's that rep range, it's that exercise. If you keep pushing it, it will eventually result in don't know, big quads or whatever. And then two years down the line, they're like, oh, maybe I will try the hack squat in, I don't know, 20 reps. And it's like, wow, my quads never felt like this. <laughs> Something like this, I don't know. Um, but I think that was, yeah, very well described. Thank you. And I don't think there's anything else actually to cover here. So I think, um, well, there probably is more we could dive into for sure, but I think you've covered it really, really nicely. And obviously, if people want to learn more about all the studies that you mentioned, or actually even more studies, I'm sure Greg is kind of covering that in, in full depth over on the Stronger by Science uh, YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, one thing I would say, uh, if I may, uh, so if people, you know, we, we kind of dove into little like niche specific topics, right? Talking about hard gainers, talking about the dual intervention point model, talking about non-response or, or below average responses to resistance training. If you're interested in just kind of a broad overview of bulking, why do we do it? What is the theoretical value of increasing energy intake to support muscle building? Uh, to what extent is recomposition possible? So building muscle without an energy surplus um, and, and uh, along with a closer look at actual research re relevant to hard gainers uh, and how to overcome that. I do have an article, uh, strongerbyscience.com slash bulking, uh, straightforward URL. Um, that's kind of the, I think that's kind of the impetus for our discussion today is that article where I talk about uh, not, you know, I, I get into some of these finer points, but I also give some pretty broad recommendations of like, how do I set a calorie target for bulking? And I give three different ways to do that. Uh, how quickly should I try to gain weight? Um, how do I know if I should be someone who tries to gain weight quickly versus slowly, right? Because, you know, Steve, at this point in your career, you should be bulking at a different rate than you were you know, six months after you first started, right? That's pretty obvious. So I go into more detail about how to determine the right calorie target or the right rate of weight gain for you based on a variety of different factors, which includes your training experience, uh, you know, your your comfort level with fat gain and a whole bunch of other stuff too. No, you're right. That is, I, I think I read it maybe in mass or maybe it was from your website or maybe a bit of both. Um, but that yeah. was the impetus. I just dug into the hard gain a bit because I was like, that's very interesting and it's nothing I've ever covered on the podcast. So I can't recommend well, yeah, the whole you, article, you but get a, it was good. <laughs> yeah, you can get a calorie target from anybody, but the hard gainer stuff was, was, yeah, that was kind of the fun, interesting part for sure. I mean, you can't get it from anyone, but you go into some extra layers of nuance that I think will be appreciated by the listener here. So certainly appreciated by me. And again, thank you, Eric, for taking a big chunk of your Friday to spend it with me. Um, I know we're we're just saying off air, we're both introverts. So it's probably part of what we enjoy is like these kind of small discussions versus being other things. So hopefully it hasn't been two hours or nearly two hours uh, wasted for you at all. And I know the listeners definitely won't think that. So thank you so much for taking the time and everything we discussed as always, I'll make sure it's linked in the bio. So we'll have the, the app, the macro uh, factor app we'll have the strong by science website and i'll have the article link below and obviously the youtube channel as well so thank you again eric for taking the time i don't know if there's anything else you want to let the listeners know about i don't know if last time i don't think you plugged anything at the end i don't know if i gave the opportunity to actually eric we, we had a bunch of uh unplanned plugs already <laughs> yeah. so uh no, no need to do any more uh, i really appreciate the opportunity to come on it's always great to catch up with you and of course i'd be happy to do it again anytime so Fantastic. thanks to you for inviting me on and thanks to everyone for listening
So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can log your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.